It started in a McAllister's Deli here in Lexington, South Carolina. I had gone in to get my kind of uh, normal, regular sweet tea after a workout. And I walked in to go order my tea. And when I walked in, there was a tall blonde girl behind the counter. And I thought, hey, never seen you before. So I decided, well, I'll make conversation. So I walked up to the counter to go order my tea. And as soon as I got to the counter, I instantly got nervous because I'm like, how do you start this kind of thing? Like, how do you start this kind of conversation? So I was debating in my mind, do I just order the tea? Do I talk about the day? Like, how do I get into this conversation? So I did what I felt like was the best decision at the moment, maybe not the best, you know, looking back. And that was to present to her a new spider bite that I had on my wrist. So I said, hey, look at my spider bite. And uh, it was life-threatening looking. And it, sure enough, three days later, I actually ended up in the ER because of it and had to have some things taken care of from it. But at the, that moment in time, I thought maybe if I showed her this, she would think, this guy's a man <laughs> who can go through a, a run-in with an arachnid like this and continue standing here ordering a sweet tea when she was not impressed. So, I, but it did lead to a little bit of a conversation eventually, which eventually led to a relationship and now has led into an eight-year marriage um, to Jenna Miller. All started out of McAllister's Deli and has come to what it is today. And the funny thing is, the funny thing about love is that um, if we were to take a poll in the room of every married couple in the room, your story, the way you met, the way you fell in love, the way that you began the relationship is probably different from every other person's. Some of them are probably funny. Some of them are serious. Some of them maybe are mysterious. Some are surprising. But they all have one thing in common. And that one thing in common, whether you're 40 years old and you have been married for many, many years, or you have a slight crush on someone just starting now, that underneath that conversation, that emotion that you're having, whatever it might be, there's a primal desire to be loved and to love. Every single one of us, no matter who you are, that is a, a key to who we are. In fact, I want to define love a little bit this morning so we we're really clear on what we're talking about today. My definition of love this morning would just be... Um, Basically, that we would have a desire to be desired because it can be an application in many different ways. For instance, uh, we can love all kinds of things, can't we? I mean, you can love football. You can love the mountains of North Carolina. You can love fishing. Amen. You can love Little Debbie zebra cakes. Yeah. You can love your wife. But I know this is true. The application of what it looks like to love a zebra cake is different from loving your wife. And no matter what high emotion and attention you give to a little Debbie zebra cake, you're not going to receive it in return. But the love I have for my wife, and contrary to popular belief, she thinks I'm quite a catch. So something that takes place within real love, and that is the desire to be desired and to actually love in return. This is the key to what love looks like and what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's the most basic form, the desire to be desired. I heard someone say just recently, we, we are incurably relational. In fact, I, I believe that love and intimacy are fundamental human needs. Every one of us have a fundamental need to be loved and to love, like needing air to breathe or food to eat or water to drink. Each and every human being, deep within your soul, you have a desire to be connected with someone else, to have a meaningful relationship. Every man, every woman at your core, you desire to be loved and you desire to love. It's a part of our makeup. You were made this way on purpose and for a purpose. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible tells us that we are created in God's image. So the blueprint that you and I were made from, the blueprint that we came from, that blueprint points directly to a God who is in relationship. This God for eternity past and for eternity future has been in perfect relationship with himself. The Bible says it like this, God is three and yet one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, ever giving, ever receiving, 
in constant relationship with himself. And this is the way that we are created. So it's no wonder that whether you're a middle school student just beginning to realize that girls don't have cooties, or you're someone who's been married for 50 years, or you're a widow who's learning to walk this new path of life, no matter who we are, at our core, we want to be loved because we, from the very blueprint, from the place that we were created, come from a God who is in relationship and God who is love. You know, one of the reasons I think that we have this desire that exists deep within us is because we know intrinsically one time in the past what it was like to not have to wonder whether you were accepted, whether you were loved, whether you were good enough. And it comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 through 25. The Bible says this. So the man that God had created gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The final verse of chapter two, verse 25 says it all. It says that the man and the woman, they were naked and they felt no shame. The word naked used here is a Hebrew word and the Hebrew word is ur. Everyone say ur. And it means to be exposed. It means to be laid bare. It means to be fully known. In verse 25, the man and woman, they were exposed, they were laid bare, they were fully known, and they felt no shame. The sense here is that when God creates this man and this woman, the relationship that they have with one another, not only with each other, but also with God himself, it is so pure, it is so healthy, it is so safe, it is so fulfilling that they could literally live in vulnerability in that kind of way, fully exposed, naked before one another, and feel no shame at all. You know, what's it feel like to be vulnerable before one another? Really, truly vulnerable. To really be laid bare and know that you're loved completely still. That you still belong, that you're still cared for. Can you imagine this kind of relationship, what this feels like in verse 25? I mean, to be honest with you, I have trouble when I go to work and I realize I didn't take the trash out on Wednesday morning. And I got to come home and I got to tell my wife about it. I mean, I have trouble with that. I have trouble putting on a bathing suit after eight, eight years of marriage and, and holiday festivities and things, going to the beach with my wife in a bathing suit. It's so vulnerable. And it shouldn't be that way. But this is the way that we were created to begin with. We were so connected to the God who was relationship, so connected with one another that the Bible says that we were naked and we knew no shame. There's been only a couple times in my life, in my marriage with my wife, that we've felt this before. And, and the first one is this, number one, when I asked my wife to marry me, any guys in the room can relate to this? And you want to know what it feels like to be exposed or vulnerable? When you go up and you have that ring in your pocket and you spent dough on that thing, you probably worked in, at some pizza joint, you know, scounging, gave her everything you could to buy this ring. And when you go to her, you probably had some cool plan or maybe you didn't have a cool plan, it just kind of happened. And you walk up and you're like, hey, I love you. Will you marry me? I mean, that is tough. You know why? Because what could she say? No. That's vulnerability. I know within our relationship, just a year and a half ago, my wife came to me and she just, she just confided to me that she was struggling with some deep anxiety. We had kind of a medical emergency. And from that, we began to realize that there was something going on within her life and some deep, deep medical anxiety, something that she could not control. 
And the fact that she could come to me and say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this and I don't know what to do about this. Knowing that I was going to love her and walk this with her and be there with her, that's vulnerability. Unfortunately, it only comes every so often within our relationships, it seems. Even though from the very beginning, this is how we were created, to be, to be fully known, fully exposed, fully laid bare, and to be loved still. To be completely known and completely loved. But at creation, this is exactly what took place. Our deepest and most fundamental need to be loved and to love was fulfilled through our connection with one another and ultimately with our connection with God. We knew him and he knew us. And for us, that was enough. And it gave meaning to every relationship we had. There was a new Trinitarian relationship that was birthed in chapter two. And that was between man and woman and God himself. Equally important. Equally needed. But everything changes in the very next chapter. In chapter three of Genesis, everything changes. Because what takes place is there's a serpent who comes along to this man and this woman begins to lie to them. What he begins to tell them is like, listen, I know God has told you that you are loved and you're completely his and you are safe. I know that you feel like, like he's everything that you need, but I'm telling you right now there's something else. I know God has given you all of creation except for this one thing, but this one thing is the very thing he's holding out on you on. And the lie that they bought was that there was somehow something else beyond God they needed to make themselves feel fulfilled, to make themselves feel loved, to make themselves feel right. And in buying into that lie, they do what they never should have done. They disobey God, they go against his plans, and they take it on themselves. And in chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, the Bible says this. When the woman saw that the fruit that she was tempted by was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, which would normally have been a great thing in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden, some of the saddest words in all of scripture. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. So man and woman as soon as this changes everything, this sin enters the picture, their relationship with God is absolutely corrupted. And because of that, there's all of a sudden insecurity that comes in part of every part of the relationship. The only difference between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, there's no change between man and woman. What's the change? In their relationship to God. And in doing so, the word naked that was used in chapter 12, that was a, uh, chapter 2, which was such a great thing, now in chapter 3 is used once again. The keystone of the relationship, this vulnerability piece now, has been taken over by shame. And it's changed everything. It's changed their relationship with God, and in fact has changed their relationship with one another. It's broken the harmony that once was. And so they hid. They were ashamed. And truth is, we have been hiding ever since. We've been hiding ever since. The shame that has crept into our life, this vulnerability that now was something so great that has become a dangerous tool for people to use against us, we begin to hide every place that we can. We hide from God, I know I have, and maybe you have too. I hide from my spouse, I hide from relationships all the time. If you're a man like me, potentially you've been asked to go to the, to the store and buy size five pull-ups. Have it ever happened before? By size five, it's a, it's a simple request, really. I thought, no problem. So I go to the store. I buy the size five, check, but when I come home, I realize I didn't get pull-ups, I got diapers. I, I hear you ladies out there. 
I thought no big deal. My wife thought very big deal. So I heard about it. It was interesting what happened within me. It was such a small thing, such a small mistake, but instantly I began to find myself feel so much shame from the fact that I was asked to do something and I didn't do it. And there was something so small, I began to find myself saying things to her like, listen, I know I'm a terrible husband, okay? I should have gotten the pull-ups. I got the diapers and I'm so sorry. But truth be told, that comes from a deep-seated, insecure kind of place. And where it comes from is not recognizing that all that I need, all of the love, all the affection, all of the, the meaning and significance has to come from God first. But instead, I was looking for it in some other kind of place, specifically within my wife and the way she would respond to me. So what it does is it makes something so small like this become such a huge, huge deal. And think about it. In all of the ways within our marriages that there's very sensitive issues, very sensitive things, if you introduce shame into any one of those, think of the chaos that can ensue. And it happens all the time. Within our relationships, finances are a piece of that. Sex is a piece of that. Parenting, careers, social media, extended family. You, you introduce shame into any one of those areas and potentially you have a powder keg ready to explode. And when we're trying to find our significance and our worth and our love from some kind of created being, we're ultimately going to become um, full of shame. And that vulnerability is going to be something that's going to be used against us within the marriage. And so what we end up doing in Genesis chapter 3, because our relationship with God is the only thing that has changed, even though our relationship with people potentially has not Starting in Genesis chapter 3, what we've begun to do is look for love in all the wrong places. Try to find this significance and this meaning and this value in things that ultimately can't deliver. So what we've begun to do, unfortunately, within the marriage is do this exact thing. We look for substitutes to show us that we're loved, to show us that we're something, to show us that we have value and worth. And we place that on other people, and it can't be fulfilled. We're ultimately disappointed. We've begun to look for our significance and our worth in the creation rather than the creator himself. Maybe most damaging is when it happens within our marriage. Our, our culture has really bought into this kind of concept that you can somehow find your worth and your value outside of God himself. You watch any movie about love and the person within that movie finds full significance, full meaning through that particular relationship. And maybe it's not put on any better display than Jerry Maguire. Y'all seen this movie? The Jerry Maguire philosophy, what's the famous line? You complete me. Show me the money, that one too. <laughs> you complete me. And if we're honest, a lot of us have this kind of understanding when it comes to relationships. Man, if I can find the right one, if I can find the one that fits me perfectly, then I'll be complete. Then I'll finally, finally be happy. And unfortunately, in this congregation and in places right across the room and churches all over this place, there are folks who have bought into this kind of lie and it's not worked over and over and over again. That somehow we can find completeness through someone else. And what it does for us, what I've experienced in my life as a single person, I've seen within marriages around me, it's created the anxiety of the one. We've become so anxious over the one. And working with young adults here at this church, I, I spend time talking to students all the time. They're like, hey, listen, I'm really looking for somebody that's going to fit all this criteria, these requirements. As soon as I find this person, boom, it's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. I also have friends who've been married for many, many years who, you know, when they're honest, are like, listen, I'm wondering if I, if I chose poorly. Did I choose the wrong one? What happened here? And this kind of anxiety, when you put this kind of pressure on a single human being in a sea of 7 billion people, to make you happy, 
by completing you perfectly, by meeting every piece of your list, that is far too much pressure than any person can possibly fulfill. And we have this kind of anxiety looking for this kind of person. I'm afraid that it, that it causes major issues within a relationship in a very serious kind of way. I want to say something to you this morning that took me a long time to understand. And to be honest, I, I have to re-understand it every single day. There is no person, there is no thing that will ever, ever complete you. But we try all the time. I mean, think of commercials alone, the things that we watch on television. If you buy this product, then you'll be happy. Think about Facebook. When you see another relationship of another couple, if you're like, if I can find something like that, then I'll be happy. We buy into this kind of lie. If we can just find these things, then, then things will be good. No one, no person, no thing can complete you. The only thing that can complete you is a deep, meaningful relationship with God. Period. You were created that way. And since Genesis 3, that has been a wound that we've been trying to fill. And if you don't find that significance, that worth in God himself, you'll be destined to try to find it in someone else every single time. And every single time it will fail. Like what ways right now, if you're honest, within your relationship that you are trying so hard to blame the other person for the unhappiness that you have? It's his fault. I mean, it's her fault. But if we're honest, if we really looked into our hearts, the problem is we don't have a connection with God. And so we're trying to find that significance through someone else and they're failing over and over and over. They can't help it. They're human. We're all flawed, fatally flawed, in fact. It has to come from a relationship with God. And it's not fair. For if you're a single person in the room today and you have this kind of mentality, you got this long list, and as soon as I find the person that crosses all these kinds of things off, then I'll be happy. So much pressure put on them. It's doomed from the beginning. And for some of us who've been married for a long time, we begin to have these kind of thoughts creep into our head when things aren't going well. Like maybe I just found the wrong one. Maybe if I could find the right one, then things would be good. No, no, no. The one you have, that's the right one. That's the one you chose. That's the one you committed to. And we put that kind of pressure on these kinds of relationships, it's potentially destructive. And so what happens oftentimes when we get married, we start asking questions like, hey, listen, what's Christmas going to be like? And Christmas comes along and you begin to compare your spouse to the way that your dad did things. Hey, listen, this is how we did things in my family growing up. I had this kind of encounter with my wife. Hey, listen, this is how we did Christmas in the Owens household. And I'm like, well, now it's the Miller household. And we began to realize that we were now one flesh. We were, we were one people. We were not these things. We were something brand new. And we couldn't compare or have expectations or requirements based upon where our family of origin is. I mean, think about some of the books that, that some people read, the fantasy books and the way the man acts and does things in that particular book or the cancer of pornography altogether that we begin to compare, have expectations based on these things. I'm telling you right now, fantasy will win every time over reality. And it's not a fair comparison. And you're doing yourself a disservice by comparing in that kind of way. Or maybe you watch Facebook just enough to see the way your friends and their husbands do things. Everything looks so happy and so great. What you don't know is five minutes before that picture was taken, they were arguing at the dinner table. That's reality. You know how I know? I've done it. That's what it's really like. But when we get to buy into the fact that maybe there's, the grass is greener on the other side, if I can just find the right person, then I'll be happy. It's a delusion. The only way you will ever be fulfilled, the only way you will ever be happy is finding your significance and your worth and your meaning in Jesus Christ, period. 
Your spouse is not meant to complete you. Your spouse is meant to complement you. Those are two completely different things. And it's different the way we come at it. I mean, compatibility is a real thing. Attraction is a real thing. I mean, do they think like I think? Do they, do they love God the way I love God? Are they attracted to me? Am I attracted to them? Are they good with kids? How much money do they have? Whatever. All these kinds of compatibility pieces are very, very, very important. But they're not the most important. When it comes down to it, I think that we've begun to believe that we just fall into love. It's like an accident. It just happens. I think that instead of falling into love, in fact, we more commit into love. When I met my wife, I mean, she's wonderful. And you'll see in a second, there's no reason I should be with her. When I met her, I was attracted to her. But what I found somewhere along the way, at some point in time, I had to say, you know what? I'm going to commit to her because I love her. And she's not going to fit every list. She's not going to fit every requirement. She's going to fail sometimes. And so am I. But I'm going to be committed to her. We don't fall into love. We commit into love. This is as true for the the young person who's just beginning to realize that, that girls are a thing or the person who's been married for a long time, both are true to commit to the one that you have morning after morning after morning and not buying into there's someone else, the one that would make me happy. What if we stopped focusing so much on trying to find the right one, locate the right one, and instead we ourselves began to become the right one? What is God wanting to do in your life specifically Instead of pointing fingers, begin to point them at yourself. God, what are you trying to do in my life? How can you work within me? How can I become the right one for my wife, for my husband, for my family? Speak to me, God. Because here's the truth. Your spouse is a gift. No matter how you feel right now, your spouse is a gift, but they're not a God. My wife, my wife is a, is a wonderful, wonderful uh, companion. I love her. But she makes a terrible God. And so do I. We begin to try to find our worth and our significance through some kind of significant other person. It's always going to fail us. We'll always be frustrated. And until we begin to realize that things will never change. We read earlier in 1 John chapter 4. Here's what it says, verse, four, or verse 7 through 11. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, who does not love does not know God, because God is love in his very nature. This is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Think about the kind of love that exemplified here in 1 John and Jesus coming to earth for every single one of us. This is a love that is self-giving, self-sacrificial. This is a love that always puts the other one first. This is a love that sees a hardened heart and can help melt a hardened heart or a broken heart that helps mend a broken heart. This is what love looks like. And the example that we're given is the example of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm convinced of. If we're ever going to really be able to love one another well, we first and foremost have to know that we are loved by God. Deeply loved by God. To the point where he's willing to sacrifice his own son for you. And in receiving that kind of love for God, that is the only way that we can truly love people well. And it's really the only way we can fully embrace the kind of love that's offered from a spouse or a significant other. You know, the past eight years has been a total blur in Jen and I's marriage. 
And honestly, it's been um, a big adventure. And so what started with a spider bite has now become two children and a mortgage. And uh, along the way, we've learned a ton of different stuff. And so this morning, we wanted to take just a moment to kind of share that with you this morning. And so would you join me in welcoming to the stage for the second time this morning, Mrs. Jenna Miller. I know everyone's thinking, how'd he do it? Well, I don't know. the youth pastor salary, of oh, course. Yeah. That's right. It's the dough. Hey, you look good. Thank you. By the way, just before we get started, I'm, I'm really proud of this girl. Um, I told her before we got to this weekend, I'm like, listen, this stage is scary. These people are scary. But y'all did a nice job being very nice this morning. Yeah, that helps you. Should I be nervous? Well, no. it's scary yes. out there. Yes. So. Uh, but she did an amazing job this morning. So the chance for us to be able to sit here, this has been an eight-year journey for us within ministry, and we've never actually done something exactly like this. And so this has been a huge, huge gift. I'm, I'm really, really thankful for it. But Jenna, what was it like when we first kind of met for a guy to walk into McAllister's and say to you, hey, check out my spider bite? Well, I'd heard about you. Um, a few weeks before, Nick Cunningham had gotten a job there, and we met and instantly became friends. And one day, he said, you've got to meet our roommate. His name's Trevor, and all the ladies love him. So I'm like, instant turnoff. No. Um, but you showed up looking all cute and presented the spider bite. And so honestly, I mean, if I look back, it probably should have been a slam dunk from the beginning when we first kind of met each other and saw each other. I mean, she's gorgeous. Everything should have been cool. But there was something that was a, kind of in the way for both of us, I think, that was kind of a big deal. And that was the list. You know, for a long time, I had had relationships that had not gone well. And most of it had to do with my relationship with God, but I had not recognized that yet. And so what I had done is made a huge list of the kind of requirements, the expectations that I had for somebody. So that when I finally found that person, then I'd actually say, you know what? You're the one for me. Mm-hmm. I definitely had a list. So now everybody writes in their journals, but back then it was a diary. And so I have my seventh grade list. So it was the one. He would be tall, me. like 6'3", or at least even six feet. Me. No. Um, so that I could wear heels. Uh, he would be a surfer or at least love the beach. And most likely... He would have blonde hair. I could take or leave that one, but that was on there. And definitely, no question, be a Southern South Carolina boy. And you, my friend, met none of my requirements. That's right. (laughs) Which is kind of a coincidence because I had a list as well, and most of my list didn't happen to fit with you either. And it was something I was really struggling with because, again, I was so convinced if I could find somebody that met all of these things that I'd be so happy, that life would be just right, ministry would be awesome, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's a guy named David Olshine that y'all may know here at the church. And he, I remember, I sat down with him. He finally told me, listen, you got to ditch the list, man. It's got to go. And I was like, no, no, the list is very, very important. And my list was I wanted someone who was 5'5", five, five, dark-haired, rock climber, you know? And I end up with Barbie. I was convinced I would find my tall beach boy, but ended up with a bearded mountain man and... I've been wearing flats for eight years. So. Amen. There you go. I'm, I'm glad we did end up with each other, though. Like, even, even through the whole process of kind of getting to know each other, we were attracted to each other to begin with, and that was, that was really certain. Um, but what I didn't know at the time was that my connection with God was, was so messed up. Again, relationships have been such a problem for me that I really need to work on that and figure that out. Otherwise, I was destined to have a, a relationship that would end the same kind of way. And so I think you had the same kind of thing going on as well. And so we individually were kind of wrestling with what God was doing in our life. And I know for a fact that we had each kind of made a commitment to Jesus before we ever really made a commitment to each other, which made it actually work. Right. And I think when I 
threw out my list, because I think once you understand more and get right with God, you're like, okay, look at the gift I was given. This and the adventure we've been on have been way better than any list I could have ever dreamed up for myself. So we've also found out in eight years, though, that there was a lot of adjusting we had to do. Um, if you remember, I was a college student living in a beautifully decorated apartment with my girls. I remember. And then I had to go into a yucky bachelor pad um, and assert my womanly touch on everything. So it was hard. And I think people think sometimes, you know, I'm going to get married, but nobody's going to change me. I'm, I'm just always going to be me. I don't have to change. Which is really a crazy thought if you think about it, that when I get married, I commit myself to another human being, nothing's going to change. And Tim Keller says when you get a dog, you have to change. So what makes you think when you get married and you commit yourself to a lifelong relationship that there's not some things that are going to adjust, not just then, but actually every year throughout the rest of your life, there'll be adjustments and, and changes that are going to take place. Right. So I think we've really bent towards one another would be how we, how we describe it. Um, it's, it's been painful sometimes. Um, before we even started to date, we had a little talk, if you remember. I remember. Um, you were an intern here at Mount Horeb and passionate about ministry, but terrible at overcommitting, back-to-back-to-back appointments, one student after the other, and running from here and there, and turning off the lights, and whatever. But I wanted to know you valued time with me, because I feel like a universal truth in life, and marriage, and anything, is you make time for the things you care about. So I even had someone ask me, um, you know, in college, you have time to work out and do all these things, but it was towards the end of college, and a friend said, hey, are you still working out? And I'm like, no, I really miss it so much, though. I wish I had time for it. And he said, nope, then you don't really care about it because you would make it a priority if it mattered to you. And that's always stuck with me. Yeah, so. That one conversation we had actually transformed the way I thought about life, period. Because like, like you said, I, we, we actually probably would not be married today if I wouldn't have made those kinds of changes, right. those kinds of big changes. Um, you saved me from a lot of burnout probably in ministry and has really given me a cadence for my life that I'm really, really thankful for. If you remember... Saturday mornings when we first got married, Saturday mornings were times to get things done for me. So I'd wake up and snap my fingers, ready to go, what are we doing? And Jenna, Saturday mornings are the time to chill. You sit around and drink your coffee and think and talk and then do something. I see you nodding, see? So that. we had to finally have a conversation about this too. And kind of like the final thing was I, I decided to start buying breakfast on Friday nights. So on Saturday mornings, I can make breakfast and hang out, feel like I'm doing something, but I'm not really doing anything. This is a compromise <laughs> that we both had. And it was something I think it was very important for our relationship. But if you remember... Though I made changes, you made some changes too when we got married. And to my knowledge, when we got married, you had never rock climbed. You had never led a middle school girls small group. You had never eaten sushi. You had never been to Indiana in the dead winter. And you had never remodeled a 1983 camper. Nope. Never prayed out loud either. And so now you've done all those things. I'm Adventure Barbie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we were our own people and we mm. still are. I just think we've embraced the ways that we've influenced each other. And it's been fun. I mean, like I said before, way more exciting than we would have planned on our own. So it's been, it. it's been a lot of fun, but it's not been easy. You know, I think every couple has a certain thing that they have to go through. And sometimes the road is harder to hoe for some than others. But for us, we've had certainly some, some hiccups and things we've gone through. But I know that when we got married, we really took our vows seriously, the things that we committed to one another. And so even when we're not feeling it, we've said, these are the things that we've promised to one another. We're going to stick to these kinds of things. And if I'm honest, the, the hardest part I think about our marriage has been when you introduce children into the mix. I mean, we love our boys more than anything. They are amazing, but they have been a challenge um, in, in trying to continue to have a good relationship with them involved. I mean, who doesn't love getting up in the middle of the night and stepping on wet diapers? You know, nothing says love like that. Or when you come home from work and try to have a conversation, try and talk to each other, and the whole time there's a tiny human behind you going, dad, 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 oh, dad. 
It just doesn't kind of create the kind of warm atmosphere that you're, that you're really looking for. But we decided long ago that we were going to have our relationship, our marriage as the priority. And so, you know, date nights for us are extremely important. And not only that, but even sharing of some of the jobs around the house, the ones you'll allow me to do, um, that's important because it shows that we're in this thing together. Right. And I have to say this. I said it before, so I'm going to say it again. He wears a pair of jeans one time. He changes clothes sometimes three times in a day. Um, That's a lot of laundry. But he bent towards me, stepped up to the plate, and now we share laundry. Off script. Okay. (laughs) Just wanted him to know. Okay. Anyway. But there's times, too, when I've gotten upset, annoyed, um, or even angry with you. But in Colossians 3, it says that we are to clothe ourselves in kindness, gentleness, and patience. Mm-hmm. So, ladies, I know getting ready this morning even, um, it was no easy task. It takes intention, and especially if you have to be up here and you're trying to figure out what to wear. Um, but over the years, we've tried to choose our battles and then what that looks like to be clothed in kindness, gentleness, and patience. And we're not perfect at it, but um, I think love is messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found the attitude that, that works best is when we have the kind of, same kind of attitude that Christ has towards us. And if you look into the scriptures, the way Jesus sees us is the Bible says, even while we are still sinners, he pursued us and he loved us and he came after us. And so even when we are each at our worst, I think we both recognize that the kind of love and the kind of um, generosity toward each other should be the same that Jesus has towards us. And so um, this has been something I think that has caused us to continue to have a marriage that is really God honoring, even in the midst of all the mess and everything else. I know you married me for my good looks, but this money maker ain't going to last forever. So at some point in time, you got to realize that there's like, there's a, there's something that goes beyond the superficial attraction to one another. There's got to be a deep anchor that is, that is full of faithfulness and commitment towards each other. Mm-hmm. And so Jen and I, we, we really love this church and we've been here for many, many years now. And we've had a unique perspective as we've worked with students, both middle school and high school here at this church to see couples and see marriages from that kind of perspective has been unique for us. And, and our desire is to see marriages within this church thrive, for them to really grow, for them to really change and become the kind of things that God wants them to be, including our own. Mm-hmm. That's what we want more than anything else. And so this morning, what we want to invite you to do is just take a moment and to really reflect on what God is maybe doing in your life specifically. Like what kinds of things does God want to do in your life to the point where you could give to your spouse in a way that's, that's God honoring. It's going to really make a difference. I mean, for us, as we just talked through, we had to learn how to bend toward one another. We had to learn how to commit to each other each and every day. And we had to learn that the list, it had to go. There was these requirements and things that nobody could fulfill really, truly in the end. So for just a moment, I'd love for you to just take a moment and say, God, what are you trying to do in my life that will allow me to be able to speak to my spouse and love my spouse in some of the ways that you're going to hear in just a moment? So take a moment just to reflect on what God is doing in your life specifically. At my rehearsal dinner um, the night before uh, Jen and I got married, my best friend Nick was there and was going to give a toast and everybody loves it when Nick speaks. Everybody got comfortable, ready for it. And he was going to you know, speak something over Jen and I. I'll never forget the words he said because we've held them close to us for eight years now. And Nick, basically he prayed for us and he said, my prayer is that your marriage, your relationship, the way that you interact with each other and love each other would give hope to every other marriage around. And truth be told, I mean, no pressure on your marriage, but your marriage is meant to be an example of what it looks like for the way that God loves his church, the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And so for us, the way we love each other, we should receive that from God first and foremost, and then willingly be able to give that to someone else, not perfectly, but being vulnerable with one another. And so this morning, I want to challenge every single one of us, man, what is God doing in your life? Do you have a connection with him first and foremost? 
and let that connection, that relationship be the guide for the way that you love someone else. Two really practical things I'd love to invite you to. One, February 15th, as Jeff said earlier, there's gonna be a great opportunity for couples to come and just spend time here at the church and enrich their, their marriage and their relationship. You're gonna hear more about it coming up, but it's gonna be a total blast. Starting February 15th for four weeks, it's gonna be called Married People. Please come be a part of that. It might be something that'd be really, really great for you and your spouse. Secondly, in your bulletin, there's a list of questions. And I'd encourage you this week, just go to McAllister's Deli, sit down, have a meal, and talk through some of these questions. Spend some time really getting to know one another. Maybe for you, it's been a long time since you really, really talked about what's going on within your marriage, within your relationship. And allow God to come into that, to heal any wounds, and to continue to make whatever is good, great. So let me pray for you this morning. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer this morning? I'm gonna pray very specifically that we would sense the kind of love that God has for us and we, with his help, would be able to extend that love, that self-sacrificial love towards the one who's maybe standing next to us and spending time um, with us. Would you bow with me? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much, God, that before we ever even thought about loving you, God, you loved us. We thank you for sacrificing your son on the cross for us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the muck and the mess. And truth be told, God, we may have a spouse right now that's not giving us a lot of incentive to continue to love really well. But God, we didn't give you any incentive either. And so help us to take the cues from you. Help us to continue to love, to continue to commit, to continue to push forward. And Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those that are in this room right now. We pray for the marriages and the relationships within our church and our community, God. We pray that you would strengthen them that you would make change in them, God, and that you would be the center of every single one of our lives. Lord, we love you this morning. Would you work on our hearts again? It's in your name we pray. Amen.